Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. Peace be upon you all. With God's name, the merciful benefactor, the merciful redeemer. This is your host and producer, John Nasheed, Blog Talk Radio. Uh, broadcasting from the beautiful city of Nourishell, New York. Uh, 7 p.m. every Thursday evening on this October 17th. The topic that we're speaking on and have been speaking on, actually this is part four, we're talking about uh, a progression. Uh, actually, Al-Islam in America, established by former plantation slaves. And that's very significant because we know that there are many uh, Africans here, African-Americans from Africa who came lately. But we're talking about African-Americans who came over on slave ships and worked the plantation. And the establishment of Islam or Al-Islam right here in these United States of America. In other words, it's an indigenous establishment by indigenous African-American people. And I think that's very important. It's important for history. Uh, uh, the truth of history, I should say. And uh, also, uh, in the last few programs, we were talking on the topic of the world trade, slave trade, you know, how greedy human beings, you know, means they take advantage of other human beings and enslave them. Uh, some uh, chattel slaves, slaves are slaves forever. And then indigenous slaves that <clears throat> had to work for a number of years to buy their way out of uh, slavery. Uh, but in our particular case, African-American people, it was designed to hold us in slavery until indefinitely, as long as they possibly can. In other words, the word chattel refers to cattle. Uh, actually, we were property. And it was also designed to literally destroy us psychologically, uh, physically, mentally, psychologically, etc. And I guess it's a miracle that we survive. And when I say miracle, I should have said it's the blessing of God, Allah, that we survive that terrible uh, institution, that strange institution, that peculiar institution of slavery here in these United States of America. But God knows best, and he brings people along, evolves people over a period of time for specific reasons. And we don't know at the time as we're experiencing pain and suffering and misery, but God is in charge. God knows best. And then we talked about the worldwide slavery in the first segment, and we also talked about slavery in general here in the United States of America, and last time, last week, we didn't have a program, but the week prior, we talked about the Reconstruction period after slavery was abolished, I believe, in 1965, and the North came into the South to reconstruct the South and put things back in order, etc. That was the purpose of it, but that lasted a very short time. African Americans flourished at that time. And one of the things I believe, personally I believe, that a great mistake was made when they put 
slave over the slave master. And this was brought about the creation of the Ku Klux Klan. And then we went into another period called Jim Crow. And that Jim Crow period, and that's where the civil rights movement was uh, born in that uh, cruel, cruel hundred years of, of lynching from 1865 all the way to 1995. And I always question, I said, in the South, when people of the South was going through that period of Jim Crow or separation, why didn't the North step in? And we have to think about that. The Reconstruction period failed, or was it serious? Were they very serious about it, or what? Then 100 years of lynching, lynchings and burnings and beatings and murder and night riders and things of that nature. And uh, many of our people are familiar with that. Actually, myself, <clears throat> I lived in a period of Jim Crow uh, all the way up to 1965. And uh, thank God I became a Muslim in 1966. And that was my whole, one of my purpose to fight racism, to uh, fight against inequalities and things of that nature, and, uh, you know, I thank God. So today we're going to be talking about uh, civil rights movement, some of the uh, events that took place in the civil rights movement. And the reason or why we're approaching this, this evolution of African-American establishment of Islam in America by former plantation slaves is because, you know, we desire to tell the whole story all the way back to the slave ships landing in America, Jamestown, Virginia, 1619. That's the history. That's where our history as African Americans began, Jamestown, Virginia, 1619, all the way up to present. And bring the history that it shows how it evolved over a period of time to where we are as Muslims today. And I say Muslim, but the whole struggle in America, regardless of what movement you are involved in, all of it belonged to the former uh, uh, African slaves that was brought to this country, be you Christian, black Christian, black Jews, Buddhists, Hindus, whatever it happens to be, we still all come under the same banner. And our way is the Muslim way, so we're expressing that. But we don't rule out African Americans who belong to other persuasions. And quite nasty God knows best. And the reason I say that is because we all have a shared experience. We all suffered the same pain and the same suffering. We all ate the same food. We all had the same culture. All of these things. Many of us grew up in the church. We understand it. Christian way. We understand many things. And then God blessed us, some of us to come to Islam, some of us to be Jews, some of us to be Christians, and others. And some not even to have any religion. But nonetheless, we all have a shared experience. So this evening, God willing, we say, inshallah, if it be the will of God, we'd like to speak on the civil rights movement. 
And, you know, I wasn't a part of the civil rights movement. And uh, in this time, in the 60s, I was a part of the Nation of Islam. And actually, that's going to be the next segment, part five. We're going to talk about how we came from this period of civil rights into the Nation of Islam. And the Nation of Islam was around since 1930 under the leadership of Ambalaj Muhammad. But there were many, many events that highlighted in our history for that time. Islam, religion of the nation of Islam was kind of in the background. Uh, the civil rights movement was in the foreground, and uh, they were fighting for civil rights, you know, rights given to us as a people by the government that enslaved us. That didn't seem to make too much sense to me. That's why I never accepted that idea of civil rights. Uh, I remember Malcolm X, he went to uh, the U.N. and he was fighting for human rights. You know, this is the inalienable rights that God gives to every human being. And this is from God. You know, this is what you fight for. You fight for your right as a human being. Uh, but the whole effort of the civil rights movement was fighting for civil rights. In other words, the right to ride the bus or our children to play with the slave masters' children and things of that nature. You know, it meant something to them, but unfortunately or fortunately, you know, I couldn't buy into that. But now I'm studying the history of the the, the, the elevation of African-Americans evolving in the United States of America is a part of our history and it shouldn't be disrespected. And quite naturally, we have great respect for those who went out on the front line and uh, brought us to where we are now. But I still believe that we should be fighting for human rights in America. America's had went through some very serious changes as a result of men like Martin Luther King and others. <clears throat> but um, America has a long way to go. You know what equality means? It means that everybody in America is equal. It doesn't mean that everybody has the same amount of money. If you don't strive to become wealthy, then quite naturally you shouldn't have it. But you should have, the door should be open for you to have the opportunity to strive for. Same thing with education, the same thing with everything that America has to offer. There shouldn't be any line, big or small, drawn behind between one human being or one American citizen to another. Everybody should have freedom, justice, and equality. And this is a right that God gives us, gives us a right to strive for what he produced or what he created for our benefit. God knows best. You know, in 1945, and as we mentioned, slavery was abolished. And we have the Emancipation Proclamation that was issued by, excuse me, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, he made some comments on, you know, we say that Abraham Lincoln, he, he freed the slaves and you know, everybody's so happy. But Abraham Lincoln made, made it very clear in a letter that he had written to Horace Greeley, who was a... Uh, Editor, I think it was the New York uh, Tribune, 
and he made mention concerning uh, slavery. And he said his real purpose for freeing slaves was to save the Union, to draw the Union, North and South, back together. He said if it took the freedom to save it, he would do that. And he said if it took enslavement of the slaves or keep them slaves to hold the Union together, he would do that also. So we don't give full credit to Abraham Lincoln for our freedom. We give credit to God for our freedom. God knows best. In 1948, and this is Jim Crow period, the period of separation, separation of the races, free but separate. Uh, Truman signed Executive Order 9981, and it states, it is hereby declared to be the policy of the president that there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed services without regard of without regard to race, color, religion, or natural origin. And this was a order. This was in 1948. I was born in 1941. I experienced two wars very early on. And that was the first, the Second World War and also the Korean War. And I remember black soldiers and most certainly they weren't created or come under that order. Truman uh, signed the executive order 9981 declaring equality in military service. Uh, Last week I read an article on the first Black Marines in World War II. They were just recognized in the year 2011, the year that we're speaking right now. Black Marines, they were trained to be Marines. They were cut out of steel and they were polished just like all the rest, but they never got the credit. Matter of fact, they were put in the dark, in the background, (laughs) given no credit, no respect. And uh, so we have to question these orders these executive orders and all of these things, this legislation has passed, and we need to hold them to it. 1948. So are these just idle words? Right? If it's, if it's a document, if it's a legal document so ordered by the president or the judge, then we must force them to honor the law and show respect. God knows best. 1954. I remember this very clearly. Supreme Court. Uh, landmark case, Brown versus the Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas. And I remember here in our city, Nourishelle, a lot of women, they got together and they were really rallying up for this uh, segregation. And this was segregation in public schools as unconstitutional. And this is what civil rights was doing. It was breaking down a lot of these uh, uh, what do you call it? segregated policies in the United States of America, and it was rendering them unconstitutional. But quite naturally, we know how sly and shrewd people could be. They pass laws, but they go about segregating in different ways, busting people out of the community or, or uh, creating uh, communities for white people, for black people, or economics is concerned, and you're forced to go to a school that's segregated 
because you don't have the means to move out of that community to go to schools that are not uh, not segregated. So there's many different kinds of ways that or schemes or tricks that they use to get people out of communities. I remember, you know, when they were talking about busing uh, black kids to integrate, busing black children out of their communities. Actually, our school here in Mary Shell, it was called Lincoln School, African-American school, black school with black teachers. They tore the school down, and they bust our kids out of the community into white communities out of their reality. didn't make sense to me then, and it don't make sense to me now. Matter of fact, they're fighting for community schools now. I think they call them charter schools. So obviously it was a mistake, and now they want schools to come back into the community. That's the way it should have been for the first time, the first place. And we're talking about the civil rights movement because we're talking about progression of African-Americans, the establishment of Islam in America by former plantation slaves. And we were we were a part of this history also. Many of us who are Muslims today was a part of the civil rights movement. And in that 1954 period, the Brown versus the Board of Education, 14-year-old young man from Chicago was visiting the South in Mississippi. <laughs> and... Uh, he was accused uh, of whistling at a white woman. And many pictures that documented right in my mind right now, I can see it right in my mind, a Jet magazine that carried the stories. And uh, Ebony magazine, many of these magazines, Emmett Till, they shot him, they beat him, they put his head in a fan and distorted his face and they threw him in the Tallahatchie River in Mississippi. And these were old Ku Klux Klan people. Uh, two white men were arrested and acquitted in a kangaroo court in the South. And everybody who knows anything about the South at that time, in Jim Crow period, we realized that the sheriff's office, the judge, the mayor, the citizens, Caucasian, white citizens, were Ku Klux Klan. I mean, it was a mockery of justice even to have a trial. And they were acquitted of murder. And this story of Emmett Till still burns deep into the hearts of African Americans. Young 14-year-old boy, they accused him of whistling at a white woman. And that was a no-no. But look at us now. We have lost respect for our own woman. We tend to call them, in many cases, many of the young men, we tend to call them bitches and and we're busy running after white women. This poor, sad African-American, psychologically damaged African-American. If we read the history, and I'm not saying that we can't fall in love with Caucasian women, of course we can. But if that's love in your heart, that's one thing. But if it's for lust, that's a whole other story. Read and study the history. Encourage our young men to study history, to read history, 
And history is just not in rap music. The history goes all the way back to 1619 Jamestown, Virginia, and progresses all the way up today to 2011. In Montgomery, Alabama, <clears throat> our beautiful African-American queen, Rosa Parks, she took leadership. Actually, she was the beginning. She was the start of this movement that Martin Luther King uh, took the leadership, the boycott, where she refused to sit in the colored section. The colored section was in the back. And many times when we get on buses now, where do we find all the black folks, especially the young ones, in the back of the bus? <laughs> you know, they, they feel psychologically like they go to the back is where they belong. You know, but she sat in the front. She sat where she was not supposed to sit, and she refused to get up. She was arrested, and she started a boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. Now, the beautiful part of that was they established a system of busing the people to work about business or shopping or wherever they wanted to go. They used carpools, they rented vans, they had vans, they bought vans, and they held out for a year, a whole year, boycotted for a year. Now, quite nicely, they went through some problems, but they weren't defied. And they saw that they weren't defied, so the uh, bus company finally gave in. And once the bus company gave in, now this is why, this is what breaks me with the civil rights movement, they went back to riding the buses. I think it would have been much easier under the teachings of the Amalaya Muhammad was to create your own bus service, to, to, to provide transportation for your own people. And if anybody else desired to ride your bus, so be it. See, the child that has his own is respected. This is a principle of life, <laughs> to have your own. But after they broke the boycott, I mean, they they, they uh, broke the bus company, I should say. They were breaking the bus company, and when the bus company gave in, they went back to riding the bus. I think that was a grave mistake. Actually, we wouldn't have had only one bus company in Montgomery, Alabama. We would have been inspired to have bus companies all over North America. Look how far we would have came. And this is not only in that instance. Even in the time of the uh, uh, lunch counter boycott, you know, Abulaz Muhammad, he was opening up Shabazz restaurants and 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 many bakeries and things of that nature. You know, have your own. Do something for yourself. Provide for your own. And when they gave in because they saw business was hurting, then we came right back to the establishment. And I think that was a very grave mistake. Uh, Martin Luther King, <clears throat> Charles Steele, Steele, and the late, he just passed away a couple of weeks ago, Fred Shuttlesworth. You know, they established the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And Mr. King, he was the first president 
of that Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And uh, they said that we must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline, he urged. In other words, a passive, passive movement. You know, Martin Luther, excuse me, uh, Martin Luther King, he said, by any means necessary. And, you know, sometimes we, we look at it and we say, hey, man, this is, this is kind of a, what do you call it, kind of a extreme. He's talking about extreme measures here. See, but remember, if you're fighting for civil rights, that's one thing. But when you're fighting for human rights, any battle, any kind of battle is necessary. Matter of fact, God blesses you. You know, I think Martin Luther think King said that later on when he began to understand things a little greater, how uh, anything, any laws that's against the moral nature of a human being, you have a right to fight against that. You have a right not to obey the law if it's going contrary to the morals of a human being. You have a right. That's maybe your law, but it's not God's law. God's law, what he gave was human rights for all human beings. We have that right. We see it right down in Wall Street right now. The people are fighting. They're fighting for their human rights and uh, Occupy Wall Street. And uh, right now, see, God knows best. Little Rock, Arkansas. This is the events that took place during the civil rights period. Little Rock, Arkansas, former all-white central high school. And, you know, these, these things come right back to my mind. I remember them just as clear as we're sitting here. And uh, people being spat on and cursed and, you know, people, those white folks' faces in those days, boy, looked just like the devil out there. That's how angry they were that these nine black students wanted to go and get a good education. And getting right back to the nation of Islam, while these things were going, we had the University of Islam. We were training our young children on a high level to understand the workings of the universe. My children went there. My grandchildren went to Cairo Muhammad School later on that developed out of the University of Islam, Cairo Muhammad Schools. We have Cairo Muhammad Schools right now. But that civil rights movement was so designed to be a part of America, opposed to being a part of American society, but independent in America. Nothing wrong with that. We're making a contribution to better ourselves and share whatever we have with other folks. Not that we're going to, like Martin Luther King said, we must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. You know, not to chump ourselves off, but working for the interests of our own selves. You know, we have a serious problem with our young people today. And the reason that we have a serious problem with our young people today is because we didn't do anything in the past to prepare for them. We were so busy trying to be a part of America and forgot about our children. And our children are coming back to haunt us. And quite nicely, God knows best. 
we talked about the Woolworths lunch counter demonstration, just as plain as day, spitting on the people, throwing coffee and milk and milkshakes in the faces, beating them with sticks and things while they're sitting at the counter, Greensboro, North Carolina. I remember we went there for a few events. African-American, he has a he has a beauty school there, a very beautiful place. And he had facilities where, you know, you could stay on campus there and you could also, they had the facility to feed it, very beautiful. But this Greens, Greensboro, North Carolina, is Woolworth's lunch counters. They had these places, they were like uh, inexpensive we used to call them five and cent stores, five five cents to five five and dime stores. I believe it was very cheap merchandise, and they always had a lunch counter in every one where you can go get simple food like a cheeseburger, burger, milkshake, uh, coffee, and things of that nature. They were humiliating ourselves sitting at these counters, you know, forcing them to serve us. Actually, bringing in the army, the national guard to force these white folks to serve us. Now, common sense would tell me that if nobody wanted to serve me at a lunch counter, why in the world would I sit there and eat? After probably you know that people spit in the food and did all other kinds of things to the food, forcing it when we should have been out establishing our Shabazz restaurants, our steak and pigs and things of that nature. You know, we didn't get that kind of support during that period of time. We didn't get it, you know, because the civil rights movement people were too busy trying to infiltrate into the ranks of the slave master. And I think that's uh, I think we made some very serious mistakes there, and that's open for discussion. And this is just my opinion. Quite naturally, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And uh, God knows best. Uh, another group, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and uh, we probably heard of SNCC, uh, and uh, that was Stokely Carmichael. I think Stokely Carmichael, before he died, I believe he became a Muslim. He was an uh, outspoken uh, young man on a college campus, and he was very loud, and he talked loud, and, you know, he got very discouraged with Martin Luther King. A little more radical, his organization became radical. Uh, H. Rap Brown, same thing. H. Rap Brown was a rapper. <laughs> he actually, I guess we could call him the rapper of that time, H. Rap Brown. And he was very vocal. H. Rap Brown H. Rep. Brown was, uh, I believe at one point he was in the uh, Panthers, Black Panthers, and he became an imam. He's in prison now. They put him in prison. They say it was trumped up charges. He had killed a policeman and, and trumped up charges or whatever the case. But I know they were after him for a lot of years because he did some serious damage, damage for good in the 60s, and uh, very vocal. So this Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they 
went to college campuses. They were speaking to the young people, and they became radical in their perception and radical in their actions from one extreme maybe to another. And when I say extreme, uh, I'm not talking about violent gunfire and things of that nature, but the kind of attitude that they brought to the picture. It wasn't that humble submission sitting in front of cars, beat down by police and dogs sicked on you. No, they would defend themselves as God teaches us in the Quran to fight those who fight you. And uh, God knows best. Freedom Riders in 1961. And these Freedom Riders, they got aboard buses and it was the Congress of Racial Equality. And that group was Core. I think their leader was Roy Ennis. He passed away, and his son, I believe, is still alive. But they were freedom riders. They were going into the South, and they were trying to register African Americans to vote. You know, they had a vote uh, voters bill that was passed also, because people in the South they couldn't vote, and they had issued poll taxes and literacy tests tests and things of that nature. And that was their justification for not allowing African Americans to vote. And this was unconstitutional because once you free free the slaves from captivity, then they have they had the right to become citizens and one of the requirements of a citizen is the vote. You give the person, the person have a right to vote. So they pulled every trick in the book. And I still I still criticize the northern government, the government who was in charge of the United States of America in Washington, D.C., for not speaking out, for not interrupting and coming in to the South and straightening the matter out. Now, remember, the southern... Confederacy were rebels, and a rebel is one who goes against the government to overthrow the government. Actually, in reality, at the end of the war, all of them should have been lined up and shot. Every one of them, right? At least everyone in leadership, because they were rebelling against the government. Now, if you go somewhere else, or you tried it, you'd be lined up and executed. And when they came out against the slaves and put them in this Jim Crow environment for 100 years, where was the voice of the United States of America? So I do give the Civil Rights Movement credit for stirring things up and bringing government in, forcing government in to take the position that they took. James Meredith, 1962. Uh, first black to be enrolled in the University of Mississippi. And uh, I guess that's a big thing. The University of Mississippi now is overrun with African-Americans, football teams, and white, white girlfriends, and all the rest of these things. I guess if that's what you were after, if that was the agenda, then accomplished. But nonetheless, we have a long, long, long way to go. Martin Luther King in Birmingham, Alabama. 
letter from Birmingham jail and uh, urging, arguing that individuals have the moral duty to disobey unjust laws. That's what we talked about a little earlier, Martin Luther King. Urging that individuals have the moral duty to disobey unjust laws. And any law that's working against the rights of a human being is an unjust law. You have inalienable rights. These are God-given rights that God gives to every human being. When you take that away, who are you to think that you have the right to dictate what my right is? And we have some very, very weak people, even today in 2011, African-American people scared to death today in 2011. Okay, if you don't understand where I'm coming from, then listen to Martin Luther King, that individuals have the moral duty to disobey unjust laws. The civil rights, during the civil rights protest in Birmingham, Alabama, and we remember this fellow right here. He was the Commissioner of Public Safety, Eugene Bull Connors. All you have to do is say Bull Connors. I think every African-American of that time could recall him because he was the one where we see on many of these footage, many footage of the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama, you know, having his people sick dogs on the people, fire water hoses to people. And these water hoses were so powerful, they were literally picking the people up and slamming them into the wall. Uh, black demonstrators being brutally beat down, having the right, fighting for their right and their dignity. Bull Connors pulled every trick in the book that he could to dissuade African-American peoples from standing up for their human rights. In this particular case, civil rights they were fighting for. And humiliating, it was humiliating just to even watch it on television. And then again in Jackson, Mississippi, <clears throat> Mega Evans, NAAC field secretary, he was 37 years old. You know, back in those days, Martin Luther King, he was probably about 39 or whatever the case, 37. These were, these were young people. I mean, looking at them now, you figure they were much older because they were so strong. They were strong individuals. But he was murdered right outside of his home, right in proximity of his wife and his children. Uh, a fellow there, his name was La Beckworth. He was tried in 1964. Both trials resulted in hang, hung juries. And then 39 years later, he was convicted of the murder. And he probably was at that time probably about 70 years old. And you ever notice, even with the mafia fellas, you know, when they take them off the jail, they'd be like cancer, uh, wheelchair. <laughs> 80, 89 years old, they committed so many crimes. Same with these guys in the South, civil rights people. When they finally do get them, uh, they're just about ready to die. 
and they probably don't have any insurance or anything. They probably have bad health. So the jail or the prison or wherever they are has to take care of them for the rest of their life. So it really doesn't make too much sense. Washington, D.C. Actually, I was on the March of Washington. Well, really, me and my wife, a few years ago, we went on a road trip and we visited all of these places that we're talking about right now, Jackson, Mississippi, Mississippi Delta, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, South Carolina, all of these places, Georgia. We went to, We went there. We went to the church where the children were bombed. We, we, we went to Jackson, Mississippi, the courthouse there, the state house, we, many places. I wanted to see it for myself. I wasn't a part of it, but I wanted to experience it. And uh, quite nicely, as I always say, God knows best. I was at the March on Washington, and I believe it was 63, if I'm not mistaken, 1963. I was working for General Motors, and they sponsored a bus, the company, the union. Actually, uh, the organization of it was done by white folks. They organized, they structured everything, they laid it out. And to my understanding, I think even the speeches that Martin Luther King was giving was written for him by some Jewish people. And I read that, and I'm pretty certain it's sound. And uh, told 200,000 people, but honestly, I believe it was much more than 200,000, congregated at Lincoln Memorial and listen to that famous speech, I Have a Dream. And uh, that was a real high point in the movement of civil rights. Now, during the period of the civil rights movement, the nation of Islam was beginning to flourish. We'll talk about that more next week because Malcolm X, uh, he was released from prison, or being released from prison, he was released from prison, and he was stirring things up. He had a strong voice, just like Martin Luther King, and he went out and he did great work in that cause. And uh, believe me, if it wasn't for the strong uh, voices on the right and those on the left and those on the middle, we would not have been successful. The civil rights movement would have never been successful. But it was the Nation of Islam in the middle, the Panther radicals on the the, the, the right, and the civil rights movement on the left. So all of us complemented one another, and that's the beauty of God's movement. Also in Birmingham, Alabama, there four young girls. We visited the church. And we, church of white Nazi is repaired now. Everything's all right. But the, the meanness, the cruelness of the South at that particular time where they put a bomb in the 16th Street Baptist Church while the children was having Sunday school and killed four girls, young girls, in the explosion. You know, that was almost too hard to bear. But nonetheless, these are the things that we had to bear during those times. I lived in the North, but just imagine the people who lived in the South. The 24th Amendment abolished the poll tax. What does that mean? That means that now African Americans 
have a right to vote. The 24th Amendment abolishes the poll tax. Uh, constituted in 11 southern states after Reconstruction to make it difficult for poor black folks to vote. Poll tax. You had to pay a tax to vote. <laughs> and what African American during that time had money to pay anything? And uh, so we see the progression. We see how things are coming together. But believe me, never, never, and this is my opinion, never will we be successful in America until we come together as a people and establish our, our own independent community life in America, just like other folks do. You know, we are part of, we Americans, we don't belong to this or that group. And actually, every time we open businesses, etc., because we don't get the support. And the only time we are successful is when we are incorporated into someone else's business, corporations, education, or whatever the case might be. And I'm pretty certain God did not bring us here to be perpetual servants of a master. I see God, the only master that we have is God. And uh, God most certainly knows best. You know, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the Civil Rights Act prohibited discrimination of all kinds based on race, color, religion, or national origin. And quite naturally, all of these things sound very beautiful. But as I mentioned earlier, they always have a way to find them, find their way around laws. You know, we have communities, young people call them now, uh, the hood. The hood is like the other side of the tracks, you know, non-productive drugs and torn down buildings and things of that nature, you know. We have that right now. We have a civil rights act. It's based on discrimination on race, color, religion, and national origin. But if you don't earn a decent livable wage, where are you going to live? You want to live on the other sides of the tracks. So if we don't have businesses, if we can't provide a livelihood for ourselves and we're dependent on $8 an hour, then you want to live in the hood. Believe me, that's exactly where you're going to be. And if we became more or had more of an entrepreneurial spirit and quite naturally, we'll find our way out. And this is what the Nation of Islam taught us. That's how I went into business, working in General Motors. I quit General Motors and went into business. And I stayed in my business for 20 years because of the disciplines that I received. Now, it wasn't just working for myself. I was working to encourage young people, my children, young people who lived in our community, that if I can do it, you can do it. Mississippi, Mississippi Delta, I believe it. Three young civil rights workers, two white, one black. Cheney, Goodman, Sverna. Went to Mississippi to register the people down there to vote, to educate them in voting, etc. They were arrested. They were incarcerated for a number of hours. 
and then the Ku Klux Klan police officers released him after dark to the hands of the Ku Klux Klan who murdered them. It took the FBI over a period of time and uh, surveillance work and informants and things of that nature to find their bodies buried in uh, isolated land in Harlem in the year 1965 you know, a great man called Malcolm X today or later he was called El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz and he formed after breaking with the nation of Islam he formed the black nationalist uh, black nationalist group is an organization of African American unity. I believe he formed that or fashioned that after Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. And when he was trying to unify Africa, Patrice Lumumba, I believe it was the Belgians who had uh, gotten his own people, gotten behind his own people to assassinate him. And they assassinated him. And now look at Africa today, sad, pitiful Africa. And now we see a great leader from amongst us, Malcolm X, Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz, assassinated. You know, they say it was from members of the black Muslim or Nation of Islam faith. <clears throat> but we know that some of these members might have belonged to the Nation of Islam, but we know where the influence came from. We know exactly where the influence come from. And uh, God knows best. Selma, Alabama. Blacks began to march from Montgomery to support the voters' rights, but were stopped on the Pettus Bridge by a police barricade. Fifty marchers hospitalized, tear gas, whips, clubs, bloody Sunday, they called it. And that picture is right in my mind. I can see it right now locking arms with clergy people in the front. You know, I remember Alton Maddox said once that we made a big mistake in the picket lines. He said we should have had the lawyers in the front and the preachers in the back. And he was right, because all of these are legal matters. You know, they were marching on faith. Right now, see, that's good. But pray from the back and let the soldiers in the front. And right now, see, we would have made just that much more progress. Uh, Congress passed the Voters' Rights Bill 1965. And now, that's all we talk about is voting, voting, voting. Actually, back in 1965, when we had the right to vote, we didn't have anybody to vote for. You know, 2011, we have uh, Mr. Obama, but Mr. Obama is not a plantation slave, Right? This next one that was coming up, he, he was definitely a plantation slave, but he was after the white folks, white women, according to the documents that they have. So I think his time is over. And if you don't believe that, ask OJ. You know, when they opened the door for you, they didn't open the door for you to come in and chase down their, their women. They opened the door for you to serve their cause or serve their purpose. So this voting right bill... <clears throat> You know, I recall, I think I mentioned last week where they had the northerners that came down for reconstruction to reconstruct the South. 
they got a little discouraged with trying to prop the African-American people up into positions, and they came to a final conclusion that the vote was sufficient for them. Just let them vote. So that's what we're doing. We're, we'll ride all over the community getting the projects and pool halls to get people to come out and vote. Vote for who? Where's the candidate? Why don't we produce a candidate to vote for? We, and we all we have is promises after promises after promises. Right? I'm being critical, yes. But sometimes we have to look at these things critically and don't always buy into it. The 1960s, uh, 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, we've been voting ever since, and we still is in the same kind of situation. You know, we have a minimum wage of $7 and some odd cents. And uh, for someone to make, I think people on welfare make more than $7 and some change an hour. And uh, these things are defeating us. We need the kind of energy to go out and challenge the world or our share of the world. This is what God promised us. You know, in Watts, California, in 65, and we see some, we see a kind of a change going on here. Civil rights, civil rights breakdown. Watts blew up. Burn, baby, burn. Burn, baby, burn. Not only did Watts blow up, New York blew up. Newark blew up. Philadelphia blew up. Detroit blew up. The Panthers started to rise in the uh, United States of America. Oakland, California, militant Black Panthers founded by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. And just to show how militant they were, they carried guns, shotguns, rifles. They had a right to carry it. And they walked into the state building bearing arms. And many of those young men right now are in prison. They gave their life for a cause, Black Panther Party. They weren't really militant in that respect. They were a party, a political party. They were trying to put black people in office. I remember in Chicago, a young man, he was a very young man, very intelligent. He was a panther, and he was a hard worker. He fed the kids. He educated the kids. And the law enforcement, they, they assassinated him in the bed where he was laying with his pregnant wife. And then they tried to say that he was shooting at them and they returned the fire. But when they did the uh, scientific uh, evaluation, they found that all of the bullets were entering into the apartment and none was coming outside of the apartment. So he was assassinated. Thank God they didn't kill his wife and unborn child. But nonetheless, he knew it. He fought for that cause. And Stokely Carmichael and uh, many of these powerful young minds of that time, unfortunately he died. H. Rep. Brown is in prison for the rest of his life. And they mentioned Stokely Carmichael, and they were talking about he coined the phrase black power. And when that phrase black power came out, it literally scared folks almost to death because 
this society, the only way they recognize power is force, arms. See how we all over the world today occupying people's countries. When I was coming home on the radio, I read where Americans had developed a bomb that weighed 30,000 pounds that can go, I believe it's 200 feet into the ground and maybe 200 feet long. What in the heck do you need with a bomb like that? It had to be a savage that designed that. And the word black power that Stokely Carmichael, when he mentioned the phrase, the world, the newspaper industry, the media, they went crazy. They were trying to find out what is this black power. But actually, Stokely Carmichael didn't coin that phrase. That phrase came from the Amalaj Muhammad. And I recall it. I was right there. I recall it. 66. This is 67, 66, 67. And the Amalaj Muhammad said black power. Now, he wasn't talking about black people power. He was talking about black economic power. That was his agenda. And they just went crazy with that, Abulaz and Muhammad. And while they were going crazy, Abulaz and Muhammad was purchasing land. He was opening up businesses, supermarkets, buying trucks, big tractor-trailer trucks on the road, cows and corn and milk and bakeries and black power. That's the power. (laughs) And that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to start talking about the nation of Islam and that black power where Abdullah Muhammad was trying to bring us. So it didn't have anything to do with race. Abdullah Muhammad's whole purpose was to bring us to a point where we were self-sufficient. If you don't want to accept us as an equal, then we have a moral right to disobey your references and go about establishing a power base our economic power base for our own selves. So we thank you for being with us this uh, evening, and we pray that we have some listeners out there. And if not, we have it on our archive where you can come back and check it out at a later date, part four. And next week, part five, we're going to talk about the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, uh, Farad Muhammad, in the Nation of Islam from 1930 to 1975. So we thank you this evening, and may God continue to bless you and your family with health and success. And we pray for the good of all mankind on this earth. Thank you. Peace be upon you all. Peace.